musical linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today I'm going to play a recording of last Monday's live salon, whose featured guest was Dr. Rick Strassman, who's a psychedelic researcher and the author of DMT, The Spirit Molecule, and uh, several other books as well. Now one of the things that I hope you pick up on when you listen to this recording is that these live salons are very informal. Sometimes there are interruptions, jokes, and off-track tangents. Uh, And that's how salons are supposed to be, uh, at least in my humble opinion. In fact, in my novel, The Genesis Generation, which you can download for free, by the way, uh, there's a chapter titled Caitlin's Salon, and it's based on the salon that Kathleen Wirt hosted in Venice Beach for many years here in Southern California. And I hope that over the next decade or so, these live sessions of the Psychedelic Salon will become as meaningful for you and our fellow saloners as Kathleen's salon was for me. So now please join me in another live session of the Psychedelic Salon. Rick, I really appreciate you spending some time to join us here tonight. Rick, uh, you may, you you know, I, I realize you're, uh, you know, you've, You've been kind of uh, taking a back seat in the uh, mainstream of the psychedelic uh, thoroughfare here lately, but uh, you're one of the big heroes of the psychedelic community, and and, uh, we're all really honored to have you here. I appreciate you taking the time to be here. Well, yeah, um, so it is true. I have been, uh, you know, kind of residing on the sidelines of the upsurge of you know, psychedelic, uh, you know, research. Uh, but, you know, that's okay. I mean, I was, I spent, you know, so much time in front and so, you know, far ahead in front that uh, I'm glad to not be, uh, you know, taking those arrows anymore. Yeah, you know, uh, it, it was such a dearth of research for so many years until you made the breakthrough. And and so, of course, you know, you would become uh, <laughs> the, the main uh, poster boy and target for people. And and uh, I don't know if you know it, but uh, when uh, Charlie Grobe started his psych- uh, psilocybin end of life research uh, for the beginning of that research, my, my wife was his research assistant. So uh, I really got to, to hear a lot about the early days of research. And by the way, I talked to Charlie just last week, and he said to say hi to you when I talked to you tonight. So, oh, well, great. Yeah, next time you talk to Charlie, if there's an opportunity, you know, tell him hello too. It's been a while since I've seen him. I will. I will. He he uh, he and I actually, because of of my wife's involvement in the study, uh, we all become friends, and so we we talk pretty regularly and all. And and Charlie actually helped me with some of my interviews with uh, Gary Fisher back when uh, Gary was still alive. So uh, we've had a long uh, relationship, and I'll be sure to pass uh, your hello on to him. So. Uh, uh, before, before I know that, that the people here uh, and, and everybody has a lot of questions about uh, a lot of your, your DMT, the spirit molecule and, and all, but I, I want to uh, begin tonight uh, talking about uh, your new book, which uh, I just finished reading, uh, Joseph Levy Escapes Death, and uh, I, d- I don't want to give any spoiler alerts or anything, but I have a, a, a question that it didn't dawn on me until I read your book, but 
you you must have been in your mid sixties when you started writing this novel. I was in my mid sixties when I started writing a novel. But lately, uh, I've been working with uh, uh, Leonard Picard, who, uh, of course, you know, is in prison and did the, wrote the Rose of Paracelsus. But he started that in his mid sixties. So, what my question is. What's up with us old psychedelic guys that start writing novels for the first time when we're in our 60s? How did that come about? Well, I think we start wanting, you know, to tell our stories, um, you know, for, I guess, uh, the future. Um, like, you know, for myself, I've always kept my personal cards pretty close to my chest. But uh, that story in Joseph Levy escapes, you know, death is an account of a year of being quite sick and recuperating out here uh, in the middle of nowhere in you know, Gallup, New Mexico. Um, and, uh, yeah, I was you know, thinking, well, I have all these great experiences, which I really have not you know, talked about that much. And uh, in you know, my case, uh, you know, not being dependent on any outside grants or permits or university uh, affiliations. Uh, I'm relatively free to speak my mind and you know, tell stories that uh, may have been, uh, you know, raised some eyebrows if I were still in the ivory tower academia, you know, doing research with scheduled drugs. Um, a couple of months ago, I spoke with, with, uh, um, well, a couple of months ago, I was in Sedona with Graham, with, with Graham Hancock, uh, and we had a, a, you know, conversation on stage. And, uh, you know, that was the first, you know, time that I actually had spoken about my first uh, experience with, uh, smoking DMT with Terrence McKenna. Um, I had told, uh, you know, a small number of people, you know, previously, but it was the first, you know, time, uh, that I had talked about that in a, a public, you know, venue. And, and I think it, you know, boils down to as you get older, you have, you know, that much, uh, you know, less to lose. Uh, you just don't care as much as you did before what people might, you know, think about, uh, you know, things that you've done or you've said or you've thought. You know, I, I, I totally agree with you. <clears throat> and also, uh, like you, you, you just said, it, it helps us kind of, it's a time when we want to get our story out. And, and you, you dropped a few uh, nice little kernels along the way. For example, one of the things that, that uh, made me smile that your younger readers would never pick up on is your mention of the Hardy Boys books. You obviously read the Hardy Boys series. Well, my brother did, uh, you know, my older brother, ah. uh, you know, the Hardy Boys were were slightly a bit too old for me, you know, but ah. my brother collected them. And, uh, yeah, you know, one of the stories in that, you know, book is me, uh, you know, dreaming about auctioning off those books. You know, that's that's fascinating because, you know, you're you're a little younger than my younger brother would would be if he was still alive. And so I was the one that read the Hardy Boys books and and he heard about them from me. So I guess indirectly we have that in common, Rick. <laughs> yes, an older brother or you can be my older brother that used to read the Hardy Boys books. <laughs> <laughs> I, so I also I read the Hardy Boys books, but I also read Tom Swift Jr., which is very 
fondly remembered by, by cartoonists of my age, but I don't know. Rick, Rick, Rick doesn't have. Uh, uh, Rick, can you see in video who who is talking? Can you see who's here? Oh, that doesn't. Yeah, that's Larry Marder. Yeah, La Larry is is a, a a famous cartoonist that does Bean World, so he's been around a long time. And and Larry, for what it's worth, I read the Tom Swift Junior books myself, and uh, I also had a part time job at our grade school cleaning out the library uh, attic. And I found the Tom Swift Senior books. And if you haven't read those yet, you need to go out and get <laughs> So, so Rick, we've kind of gotten off track with me asking you about the Hardy Boys. <laughs> what direction would you like to go in now? Well, you know, speaking of things kids used to read, I mean, when I was growing up and did a lot of reading like that, well, as a small kid, I read the books about uh, Mr. Bass and the Mushroom Planet. Uh, it was a very, you know, trippy, uh, you know, like an alien guy with a big head. And he, uh, you know, lived on this, you know, mushroom planet. And it's a really weird place. You know, so I'm, you know, wondering if those, you know, books may have influenced me starting at, you know, six years old or so. You know, when I was older, I read all the James Bond books. Um, so, you know, that might have, you know, contributed to, uh, you know, some swashbuckling. But, uh I'd say, uh, oh, oh, you know, one of the things I was interested in, you know, commenting on, you, uh, had spoken about, you know, Gary Fisher. And, uh, you know, Gary, you know, gave the largest, you know, dose of oral psilocybin in recorded history, 120 milligrams. Um, and if you compare that with the high, you know, doses that are being, you know, given, uh, you know, now, Nowadays, let's see, you know, 0 0.4 milligrams per kilogram. Yeah, you know, you know, 30 milligrams, you know, 40 milligrams is, uh, you know, considered a high dose now. And, uh, when Gary was doing, uh, human research, he gave 120 milligrams. You know, he didn't really discuss that trip that much, you know, but I still used his you know, publication as a, uh, reason or as a, you know, support, uh, for, you know, some of the dose finding work with, um, psilocybin that we did in New Mexico before I wrapped up my study. We gave 1.1 milligrams per kilogram of, uh, you know, pure oral psilocybin. And in an average weight, you know, person that would be, uh, let's see. Uh, 1.1 times 75. It would be like 80, 90 milligrams of oral psilocybin, uh, which is still maybe three times what's considered a high dose now. Yeah, Gary, Gary really broke a lot of ground and, and, uh, it's a shame his work kind of got, uh, pushed to the background because, uh, he, he was really on the, the leading edge, although, of course, he, uh, uh, you know, he, he pushed the edge, but there was no edge at the time. You know, there were, there were no IRBs or anything like that when he was doing his work. So, so yeah, um, and, uh, with the studies, you know, that I was doing in Albuquerque, I had pretty much, you know, free reign once we uh, established a you know, track record of, you know, safety. Um, you know, we could increase the dose, uh, we could give it in, you know, different, in, you know, different ways. Uh, we were able to combine DMT with other drugs. Um, and it was also helpful with respect, you know, to the DEA. 
uh, it took a long time to work out a you know, system where the DEA would allow us, you know, to possess a Schedule One you know, drug for study. You know, but you know, once we squared you know things away with um, with DMT, um, we got an we received an import license to bring in you know, psilocybin you know, for our study, uh, which only took maybe three months, and then after that, we obtained an import you know, permit to bring an LSD from Switzerland, and and obtaining you know that permit only you know, took about a month. You know, so. Uh, uh, you know, we were able to, you know, do things, you know, give doses that uh, were, you know, pretty much, uh, you, know, um, you know, that were up, you know, to our discretion. And, and so you weren't as bound by a protocol then, right? Well, our study is all required, you know, protocols, you know, review, you know, by, you know, local, state, uh, you know, federal scientific advisors, uh, you know, plus the DEA. You know, but the content of those protocols, if we were able, you know, to justify our requests for, you know, this or that, um, you know, they were, you know, pretty lenient. Well, uh, let's let's rewind just a, a bit, Rick. We have a, a lot of people that will be hearing this podcast are, are, are high school, college age, 30 and under, trying to get their careers in, in line. And, and how can – just kind of take us through from – uh, being a six-year-old reading really fascinating comic books to uh, getting the idea for your study and then having the courage to go through and, and I assume kind of uh, push a wet noodle uphill against your colleagues. Uh, how did all this come about? How did you evolve into uh, breaking the logjam of psychedelic studies in the United States? Um, well, I think... It started off with my interest in, you know, fireworks. Um, when I was a high school student, I used to get, you know, chemicals, you know, from the drugstore, you know, down the block and make, you know, gunpowder and bombs and fireworks. Uh, and I started college actually as a chemistry major, uh, thinking I would become a, you know, fireworks, you know, magnate of some sort. You know, but I was discouraged and they said, well, you're a smart guy. You should go to medical school. You know, uh, but still, you know, my, uh, you know, fascination with things that were bright and, you know, colorful and exciting, uh, you began, uh, even in you know, my teen years. Um, and when I was in college, I, you know, heard about the effects of, you know, psychedelics, which were, you know, colorful and exciting. Um, and also, you know, meditation was, you know, coming into California. At that time, um, and you know, some of the descriptions of the states seemed quite you know similar, and uh, I thought perhaps there was some common biological denominator that was you know mediating the effects of of you know psychedelics and of meditation. Uh, you know, so I started to think about the you know, biological you know, bases of spiritual experience. Uh, started off looking at the pineal gland, which has a long, you know, venerated history um, in esoteric and physiologies. Um, you know, but and you know, this was in the early 1980s, and there wasn't that much, you know, known about melatonin. You know, so we, you know, mostly discovered it was, you know, primarily sedating. Um, you know, so by then uh, I had learned about, you know, DMT, uh, you know, change 
you know, career you know, paths, uh, you know, so to speak. You know, but I also, you know, through the melatonin work, had established myself as a independent, uh, you know, clinical researcher. Uh, you know, so the you know DMT study was uh, designed to be as you know simple as possible. Um, you know, so we we studied you know normal volunteers, uh, you know, without any you know, therapeutic uh, agenda or spiritual agenda. Um, we were only going, you know, to measure things, uh, you know, without actually uh, intruding on people. You know, so, you know, we drew blood. Uh, we looked at heart rate and blood pressure. Um, we, you know, developed a new questionnaire to quantify the subjective effects. Um, and I also spent... You know, much time interviewing you know people, you know, just to hear their descriptions uh, of you know, what was going on in there. You know, so it was a you know dose response you know psychopharmacology study. Uh, you know, pretty you know non-threatening in a lot of ways, and it you know, possessed a lot of good you know science. Um, you know, which the government and academia were interested in applying to the psychedelic state because it had been so long, you know, that human, uh, you know, studies, uh, you know, were in hibernation, you know, so we you know, kept our goals, uh, you know, quite modest, uh, you know, stayed out of the media, you know, didn't do any interviews, uh, you know, Albuquerque is, well, especially, you know, back then it was off the beaten track, you know, so we weren't going to be getting a lot of attention. Um, yeah, and it was just a step-by-step, -step, you know, process interacting with, you know, all the, you know, panels and the councils and the boards and whatnot, uh, you know, you know, first at the university, you know, then at the state level, you know, then the federal level, FDA and uh, the DEA. And and what about your colleagues uh, at the time? What, what Did they think you were crazy <laughs> or what? Oh, man. Uh you know, within the you know, psychopharmacology community, it was you know, kind of a big shrug. You know, we've, we, you know, we've been there, done that. Uh, you, you know, these old timers, you know, who, uh, you know, cut their teeth on you know, psychedelic research in uh, the 60s. You know, so, um, um, you know, when I was uh, standing in front of one of my posters at a meeting, you know, one of uh, you know, those old timers came up to me and said, it's deja vu all over again. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, still, uh, you know, I was the only guy in a huge auditorium that was standing in front of a poster describing the effects of DMT. You know, everybody else was, you know, looking at depression and schizophrenia and, you know, the latest and, and, and uh, the latest antidepressant or, or anti, uh, or antipsychotic medication. Um, you know, so it was a, sh it, it was a shrug. It, it was, you know, um, you know, some, uh, <clears throat> bemusement, uh, you know, kind of like a lone, you know, voice in uh, the wilderness. And, you know, what's the point? Um, aren't these, you know, drugs, um, you know, useless and, you know, dangerous and, uh, you know, those, um, you know, kinds of beliefs. Um, you know, so in a way, it was, you know, positive that, you know, people, you know, mostly left me alone. But at the same time, 
one of the fatal flaws of my study was that I didn't really have colleagues, um, you know, to work with, you know, because, you know, nobody else was, uh, you know, doing this you know, kind of work in the U.S. You know, nobody in, in my department was you know, familiar with what I was doing. You know, they just wanted me to, uh, you know, get grants and write papers and uh, stay out of trouble. But, you know, you know, being able to actually be, you know, colleagues uh, in uh, the trenches and, you know, afterwards, you know, processing, you know, people's trips, uh, you know, that would have been uh, really quite helpful. And, and if I, unless I'm mistaken, yours was the first uh, federally approved uh, psychedelic research after the, the dearth of the, the, after the 60s, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, we began, you know, the paperwork um, in around, you know, 1988. And uh, we gave our first, you know, dose of, of DMT in uh, November 1990. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, and uh, it isn't, you know, purely sour grapes, you know, but if you, uh, you know, look um, at the current interest in these drugs, it's as if our study never happened. Uh, it's a very strange thing. Um, if you read, you know, Bill Richards' book, you know, Sacred Knowledge, and, and uh, you, you read the foreword, you know, the guy that wrote the foreword, you know, claims that the Hopkins studies were the first new studies, you know, since, you know, 1970. Uh, our study, you know, was before that. You know, there was, you know, one in Tucson before that, and in Florida before that. Um, and if you read, you know, Michael Pollan's book, there's one mention of our, our work, just, just one, you know, single mention, almost as a footnote. Um, and, you know, there aren't any references, you know, to the DMT book. You know, you know, to any of our you know, scientific papers, you know. So at you know first, well, you know, there's a <clears throat> a few you know reasons you know for that uh, you know revisionism, uh, which is you know kind of you know what I would call it. You know, one is just you know purely self-serving. You know, like oh, I was there first. I'm the coolest guy. You know, but uh, it also I think uh, you know relates you know to DMT. You know, DMT is not another Prozac, and uh, you know, lots of the you know medicalization of you know psychedelics is being you know is um, you know being well contextualized as uh, you know one more you know tool in the you know pharmacopoeia you know for what ails you you know so you know DMT isn't that way I mean DMT is very strange. And, you know, that's the hallmark of it. It isn't, you know, something, you know, that you're depressed and you take and then you're happy. You know, this, like, blows your mind. Um, and uh, it's also endogenous. It's made in the human body. Uh, and I think, you know, those two qualities or those two, you know, properties of DMT, you know, makes it, you know, not quite as... Uh, you know, not quite as, uh, you know, like amenable to, you know, being, uh, you know, massaged, you know, by the media. Um, you know, so, uh, it's, it's about, you know, end of life care. It's about depression. It's about, you know, creativity. You, you know, but it isn't about, I'm um, encountering these strange, um, these strange, you know, beings in a, 
you know, discarnate world of light. You know, that's a you know bit of a you know larger you know, bite uh, you know to take. You know, uh, uh, Rick, that, that I've got a whole bunch of things that you've raised a bunch of questions, but before I forget this one, uh, you you uh, you you got me thinking when you said you you as a young child your first interest was in fireworks. Uh, in in some of his talks here, Terrence McKenna has said his first uh, interest that led to psychedelics were in the uh, I don't know the exact biological term, but in the uh, you know the beautiful butterfly wings and the seafood. Uh, wings of various insects. Again, it was the the fireworks, and of course, when when I talk uh, about going into uh, uh, the mushroom state or ayahuasca or whatever, the the beginning part I always describe as fireworks. So you're on on target with many of us there. Uh, the other thing I want to mention is that here in the salon, uh, everybody is really aware of your pioneering work. Uh, in fact, on on more than one occasion, uh, yeah, there's there's a uh, one of your books right there. And, and on more than one occasion, Charlie Grobe has mentioned that uh, you were the one that broke the log jam and everything. He never would. He, he said he, he couldn't have gotten his uh, protocols passed without the pioneer work that you did. And uh, while some people think of it as uh, uh, Neil Armstrong walking on the moon, uh, to me, a more scary idea is the guy that ate the first mushroom. So bravo to you, Rick. You really, really stepped out there and uh, did a lot for all of us. Well, thanks. Yeah, well, you know, I don't, you know, take it all that personally. Um, I think, you know, the more um, important thing is, uh, it's, uh, is, um, you know, refers to, you know, what it is, you know, saying um, about the current state of interest in the psychedelics, um, especially, you know, from the research community. You know, there's a, you know, normalization you know, which is important. I mean, there wouldn't be anywhere near the kind of uh, increase in good clinical studies, you know, without, you know, normalizing, you know, but you don't want to strip, you know, psychedelics of their, uh, of their strangeness, of their, you know, making you look at things in a way that you really weren't, you know, sure of before, you know, but you had an inkling about, um, well, you know, that's not, you know, putting it as well as I'd like. Uh, you know, psychedelics are strange. They make you feel strange. They, they change the way you look at the world and what might be seen as a strange way. You know, so, you know, there aren't, you know, they aren't only medicines. Um, I think they're, you know, tools which can be used medicinally, but, uh, they can be used for a lot more. You know, Rick, that, that's a perfect uh, example of what Bruce Damer said just last week, where he said he, he prefers not to call them medicines because that sort of uh, implies an illness. He calls them elixirs. Uh, well, you could. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, what you call these, you know, drugs is, uh, you know, is, uh, you know, quite interesting. Uh, you know, psychedelic is still my favorite. Uh, you know, hallucinogen is a little strange because it, you know, doesn't really, uh, you know, cover, you know, much of what's going on. Uh, and, you know, the more pejorative uh, expressions, uh, you know, for example, uh, you know, things like schizotoxins or, you know, psychotomimetics, you know, obviously you're not going to want to take one of those. 
you know, but, uh, you know, the more, uh, you know, flowery terms, I think also, you know, limit what the drugs do, you know, like entheogen, uh, you know, what if you're, you know, what if you're an atheist, you know, should you take an entheogen? Um, and, uh, it, you know, kind of, you know, places an expectation as well on what kind of experience you're going to have. Uh, you know, so if you don't see God or have a mystical experience, you may, you know, feel, you know, that you, you know, failed somehow in, uh, your encounter with, with, you know, um, with an, and with an, and theogenic drug. Uh, and, you know, mystical mimetic, it's, you know, the same kind of thing. Uh, you know, Stan Groff, you know, likes to describe, you know, psychedelics as non-specific mental amplifiers. Uh, they just are disclosing, you know, what's there either more or less consciously. You know, one of the, you know, um, with regard to Stan's comment about psychedelics being non-specific mental amplifiers, you know, that's one of the ideas that's been stimulating my thinking about the psychedelics as, you know, super placebos. Um, you know, if you read the literature, you know, psychedelics improve depression. They help with end of life care. They are, you know, helpful for OCD, alcoholism, uh, you know, substance abuse, eating disorders, you know, prisoner, uh, you know, prisoner recidivism, you know, nature appreciation, openness. You know, so how can one, you know, drug uh, exert, you know, such incredibly widespread effects. And, you know, the expression for a, a, you know, substance, you know, like that is a panacea. Um, it heals everything. You know, so if you look at, you know, you know, the psychedelics in a way as a panacea, you know, because they are proving to be useful in this incredible variety of conditions. Um, you know, how does panacea work? And, and I think it works through the recruitment of the body's own innate, you know, healing mechanisms, you know, which is, you know, the way that placebo works. Uh, it stimulates immune function, uh, endocrine function. Um, you know, so if, uh, you, you know, look at, you know, psychedelics as, um, in that way, like, you know, to consider them as, you know, super placebos, I think it would go a long, you know, way to understanding their in their incredible range of effects. You know, you know, but I think also that they may, you know, turn out to be incredibly useful, you know, tools, you know, for understanding, you know, the placebo effect, uh, which you know can be turned to all kinds of conditions. You know, you know, like if you've got cancer, you're getting chemotherapy. You want to apply as much you know, placebo, you know, power, uh, as you can, you, you know, to help with, um, you know, tolerating side effects and to increase, uh, the, uh, and, you know, to in, in, well, you know, to, uh, you know, make the outcome, you know, turn out better. So, uh, if, you know, for example, you gave a small amount of LSD to, you know, somebody getting, you know, cancer chemotherapy, you know, and obviously in a, you know, supportive, you know, psychotherapeutic environment, you know, would, you know, would their outcomes, you know, be better? 
you know, then if you know, they weren't uh, you know, primed to improve or to increase you know, their placebo response. Yeah, and and uh, circling back to how how you began uh, talking about this is the use of the word psychedelic, and I totally agree with you, Rick. I I looked at calling this uh, program a lot of things. You know, it's been 15 years ago I started it, and uh, back then, you know, the word psychedelic was a little more toxic than it is today. But uh, I totally agree with you. There's really no better word that uh, than Humphrey Osmond came up with and uh, mind manifesting psychedelic. So. Uh, uh, I, I totally agree with you. Uh, Rick, I, I want to let you know that uh, I invited him, and uh, he is here with us from Okinawa. Is, uh, Andrew Gallimore is here. And also, I, invent, oh, I, I invited Dan, Danny McQueen. <laughs> he sends his apologies and says that uh, his wife is, is uh, doing a presentation tonight, and he's babysitting the girls. So he gives his apologies for not being here tonight. But, uh, Andrew, uh, can, can we unmute your mic? Do you want to say hello? I unmuted you, and you didn't. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> oh, there's Andrew. Hi, Rick. How are you doing? <laughs> uh, I'm good. Let me switch on you know the video for a minute oh, or two, sure, you sure. know, so you can see it's me. How's it going? <laughs> I'm uh, not sure everybody knows, but whilst me and Rick have worked together and have an extensive contact over the last few years, we've never actually physically met yet. Um, hopefully in the not too distant future we'll be able to work it out one day one day yeah and, and Rick I want to introduce one other man here to you is Kevin Thorbane and Kevin is right as you see him right now is is driving down central Ohio he joins us every Monday night from the road but Kevin is the one that introduced us to Andrew and we've done a, a podcast with Andrew and with Danny McQueen and so uh uh, the whole thing circles back to you, and that's where it all started with. Well, I mean, I was, uh, you know, like at a you know, certain, you know, way station at that time. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I stand uh, in line with a lot of other people, in- <laughs> including Andrew. Uh, you know, Andrew is, uh, you know, a few years younger than I am and will, you know, carry the torch. Hi, Rick. Just wanted to introduce myself. Uh, to put a face to the name. I'm the one that actually sent you the uh, DMTX patch in the mail a few months back. Oh, okay. Uh, well, so the patch isn't quite, you know, within arm's reach, but I have a you know DMT you know necklace which uh, oh, has a nice. prominent. Yeah. So. <laughs> Whole different kind of Cub Scout. So, Rick, this is this is. An impertinent question, because I really don't know you. I was close friends with Myron Solaroff, and I'm a good friend of Charlie. And, of course, you know, Myron started a lot of this psychedelic research uh, back in the 50s. And then uh, after you broke the ice, Charlie has picked up, and he's done an awful lot of psychedelic research. And then there's you. Uh, and and I, I'm trying to say this as politically correct as I can, but I find it fascinating that all three of you are of Jewish descent. Do you think there's any connection to Jewish scientists and psychedelics? Uh, well, I think so. You know, that is a, you know, hot button or, you know, uh, you know hot button you know, kind of topic. Uh, the, you know, the Jews and, you know, the psychedelic state. Uh, you know, but it is true. Uh, you know, the Jews are interested in those kinds of things. 
you know, Freud was interested in working with the unconscious. Um, you know, one of the main you know, Canadian you know, scientists, you know, doing LSD work in uh, the you know, 1950s and uh, the 1960s you know, um, was a guy named Abram Hoffer. Sure. Oh, yeah. He was, guy. he was very. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, so I think it's, you know, just, you know, the Jewish edginess, uh, you know, kind of exploring things that um, might be taboo or might be you know, too complicated, uh, you know, for most people most of the time. You know, but then you start to, you know, get into, you know, lots of, you know, politically, you know, complicated things. Uh, but, uh, you know, speaking of that, I mean, in my uh, book that came out in 2014 called you know, DMT and the Soul of Prophecy, um, I take the DMT story into the world of the Hebrew Bible and the prophetic experience, which uh for a number of readers was a hard, uh, it was a hard, you know, nut to crack, uh, you know, because of all of the, you know, uh, you know, the negative associations, uh, that most you know, people experience when they, you know, think about that text, you know, the Old Testament. Uh, you know, but the first, you know, quarter of the book, um, I, um, you know, take the reader by the hand and explain you know, how I got from you know, Zen Buddhism to DMT and how the DMT work didn't quite, you know, fit in with the you know, Zen model, but it did you know, better with a, uh, you know, model which is articulated extensively in the Hebrew Bible, you know, the prophetic experience. You know, but, you know, when you start to, you know, point at the Bible, you know, you, um, you need to, you know, raise, uh, or you need, you know, to address, you know, certain, extremely, you know, controversial, you know, topics like God and Israel. Uh, so um, it's a lot more, you know, complicated than approaching things, you know, from the, you know, from the, you know, new age point of view or the, you know, diluted Buddhism point of view. Um, but still, uh, if you're going to be considering, you know, psychedelics as you know, potentially spiritual, you know, to enhance your spiritual evolution, uh, you want to look into you know models which have you know, proven useful and you know resemble the you know psychedelic experience you know if you look at you know descriptions of you know visions in the Hebrew Bible, especially ezekiel it's incredibly psychedelic you know so um you know one of the strengths of you know the Bible is it describes you know how to be a good prophet. You know, like, you know, how to ask, you know, questions in that state, you know, how to understand the answers you're given, uh, you know, how to, uh, you know, negotiate in that, you know, DMT-like state. Uh, you know, so I wouldn't, you know, say it's the best um, or the only, you know, way to understand the, uh, uh, you know, psychedelic experience, you know, but if you're, you know, more interested in, you know, the content, of the you know, psychedelic state, uh, as opposed you know to the you know content-free white light and mystical union state, um, you know the Bible is a you know, good alternative. Uh, you know, um, it's a good option uh, if you want to uh, you know learn about uh, you know DMT-like spiritual experience uh, you know, from the ground up. Yeah, and and of course, the name I left out of there was Rick Doblin and all the uh, research that he's gotten established in Israel. You know, besides uh, 
MDMA and cannabis and psychedelic research, uh, he, he and MAPS have done a great deal there. So, uh, you know, that, that perhaps it also is medicine. There are a lot of, uh, Jewish doctors, but, uh, I, I think it's important to realize that, uh, the psychedelics are, are, uh, you know, pretty much class free and race free and they, they attach, attack us all. We, you know, we've, we've all had the, ex- or many of us experiment, experiences with, uh, Iowa's Caros who really come from a totally different culture than ours. And yet we wind up, uh, having, uh, interesting, uh, experiences that are cohesive with both of our cultures. So, uh, it's just something that I'm curious about and, uh, I hope more people, uh, kind of explore a little bit. So uh, let, let me open it up here to see if there's other people with questions. You, uh, go ahead, Mark, are you raising your hand? Go ahead. So, so Rick, you've been such a huge influence on my life. Oh my gosh. So I've got your signature on my books. Long story short, it's all about the soul prophet. <laughs> so long story short, about four or five years ago, I thought my son was going to die. And I started looking at this oh, stuff no. as if some other way to get across. Look at that, um, you know, so I started looking at out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, and came up with DMT, then all of a sudden ran to the DMT, the spirit molecule, Joe Rogan and you, and then the, uh, and then finally the soul of prophecy, and that really dug into that, so I've met things, and I felt like I've been told that, like, the, everything's going to be okay in the end, but now I'm into philosophy and psychology just to understand if any of that stuff's actually real, so my question to you is, since the book has come out, is there anything that you can fill us in on that may be very interesting or things that you may have found? One of the things I'm trying to do now is compare experience reports with AI. So therefore I can try and see if these 10 or 20,000 experience reports I see across the web, if there's any commonalities between them and I'll shut up now. Sorry. Thank you so much. Uh, sure. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks for tuning in. Um, well, let's see. Yeah, I mean, can you, I mean, uh, you know, can you encapsulate that question into like one question? So, so, okay. So since you did this whole prophecy, is there anything interesting or bizarre that you found that would kind of lead you to still believe that it's something else over there besides just yourself? Oh, oh, I see. Um, well, so you're asking if I'm convinced that the DMT state, let's say, is objectively real as opposed to just a product of our mind? Yes, sir. Or if there's anything else that you found since yeah. the, since your book? Well, you know, with in you know terms of the you know, prophetic states work, no. Uh, you know, um, I get you know quite a bit of email, and I've heard from just a small number of you know Jewish people, you know, that uh, they're interested in the implications. There's you know one guy I just you know heard from a few weeks ago who smoked some DMT. Um, you know, former, you know, super orthodox guy, you know, black hat and side curls and black suits and thing. And he, uh, he, you know, kind of went off, you know, to Tibet and or, you know, Nepal and smoked DMT. And uh, it confirmed all of his studies of Kabbalah. So, you know, he's been, uh, you know, going around, uh, I guess you would say, you know, like initiating you know, former or currently you know, super orthodox you know, Jews to experience DMT. You know, so I, I think it would be, you know, interesting, you know, to interview those guys, you know, carefully and ask them what is going on, what the commonalities are, you know, like you're uh, wondering about. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, whether or not there's uh, any new, you know, data about the reality of the DMT world, uh, 
still remains to be worked out. You know, that's one of the things that's going on at Imperial College now, where Andrew's you know, paper with me on the continuous infusion study is being, uh, you know, worked on, you know, planned. Uh, you know, so I think if you can keep people in the DMT state for a number of hours, uh, you'd be able to start, you know, doing experiments to determine if it's a purely internally you know, generated world or, you know, you know, possesses, you know, some inherent, uh, external objective reality too. Can I, can I jump in and offer some? Go ahead, Andrew. <laughs> Please. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really interesting question because, you know, this idea of the, the ontology or the reality of the, of the DMT world is, is, um, comes up again and again. You know, people say, oh, it's amazing, it's incredible, it's astonishing, but is it real, right? And, and, and Rick mentioned this, this continuous intravenous infusion uh, technique. And the idea, I think, there's two, there's two ways you can approach that question. You can, one approach, kind of the, the standard approach, is to kind of try and get into that world and test it in some way, or to test the, the intelligences, uh, you know, give them mathematical problems or things like that. But there's another way that you can do, which people haven't really spoken about, and which I'm actually going to talk about at Breaking Convention, which is actually to look at the, basically, you know, the worlds are always constructed, as I always say, they're always constructed by the brain. And, but the properties of the world depends upon how it's constructed. Um, so, for example, a sensed world um, has a number of properties so when I say a sensed world, I mean like the normal world that you are experiencing has a number of properties that are a direct consequence of the way that your brain constructs it and the way that your brain basically builds a model and then is testing it against sensory data on a continuous basis. Now, that that differs from something like a dream world where, where the, the brain doesn't have access to sensory data. So it's my opinion that you can actually start to look at the way the brain is constructing the DMT world um, does this look more like a world that it's simply kind of making up or does it look like a world that it is testing against sensory data? In other words, does it look like it's a world that's being constructed under the modulation of sensory information? Um, so, so there's two completely complementary approaches there. But I think looking at the world and the way it's constructed by the brain is actually much more amenable and certainly using a combination of extended state DMT together with um, you know, neuroimaging and actually performing tests on, on, on the subject might actually be a way to get at that question without having to try and get into the DMT world, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I, and I was there with ayahuasca. So like for me now, it's all about, well, now can I trust it? And is it all in my head? And going back to philosophy, because that's the only way that you can test any of this stuff, because there is no science to it. Right? Sorry, thank you so much, both of you. I appreciate it. And, and and I I'm really fascinated by all all of this this uh, these potential studies. <clears throat> My question to you, Rick, because uh, you some you're someone that actually has hands-on experience with someone that's having a a more extended ex, uh, DMT experience in a medical setting. What do you think uh, all of the like an MRI and all is going to do to uh, how's it going to affect the DMT trip? Um, well, it's going to. Uh... You know, but, you know, when you're in a big, you know, like after you've been given a large dose of DMT, you know, to a large extent, you know, the outside world just, uh, you know, falls away. Okay. Um, right. You know, when we you know, gave our large you know, doses of DMT, 
we checked, you know, the blood pressure at the two minute point, you know, two minutes after, the, you know, the injection and, you know, five minutes and also 10 minutes. And most of the volunteers, almost all of them were unable to, you know, feel or, you know, had no recollection of, you know, feeling, you know, this incredibly tight cuff inflate over their arm. At the two minute point, it was almost uniformly the case. Uh, and usually at, you know, five minutes too. You know, so, uh, I think if you're on a big enough, you know, dose of DMT, uh, you could be anywhere. Uh, and, uh, you're functionally, you know, deaf too, I think. I don't think you can hear things in the outside world. Uh, at least, you know, not to the same or in the same, you know, manner as you do, you know, normally. Um, but the main thing is that you're not that involved with you know the outs- you know with the outside world uh you're out of your body uh you're occupied otherwise with the contents of the state when 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 you did your your initial dmt work uh and the first uh uh i'm i'm revi- or revisiting a little bit of your spirit molecule book how how surprised were you when some of these uh uh, stories started coming back about uh, other world entities, etc. Um, well, let me you know finish about the MRI because I was you know thinking you know back you know to those days. Uh, we, you know, we gave you know DMT to maybe three people, um, you know, being scanned in an MRI, uh, and it's a really loud claustrophobic experience. Uh, but um, I think the three people that we studied really, you know, didn't complain. Uh, you know, they had to stay in there as the, you know, drug wore off. And once, you know, they were straight, you know, so that was hard, you know, but in the, in uh, the middle of the experience itself, uh, you know, they were pretty oblivious to all, you know, the racket going on. Um, well, you know, the entities, you know, the beings, uh, it was strange because I spoke with about, you know, 20 uh, informants about, you know, what to expect when I was going to begin giving DMT to people. Uh, you know, I, I, I spoke to Terrence, I spoke to his wife, I spoke to Dennis uh, and you know, 15 or you know, 16 other people. You know, um, I asked them, you know, what you know, should I expect uh, once I start this study? And, uh, uh, the you know the vast you know majority you know said the beings you know there are these aliens these these elves these tykes these uh, these things you know so I included that question or you know those items on you know the rating scale that we developed to you know, quantify uh, the state but uh, you know still uh, well and you know from my own you know personal experience which i described with that you know Graham Hancock interview uh you know from Sedona a few months back you know, my first you know DMT experience was you know full of aliens you know you know full of these little beings who emerged you know, from a waterfall and started speaking to me um you know so you know um, I ought you know to have been expecting the frequency of reports of beings uh, but I wasn't really quite prepared. And I think even more, you know, troubling at the time was not, you know, simply their encounters with the beings, but, you know, their conviction 
of their reality that that's you know they were convinced that these things were real and they were powerful and intelligent in a way that was just incomprehensible uh and it was you know happening in real time uh so um you know that was perhaps you know the harder uh you know concept to you know wrap my head around the idea of you know the reality you know bases of uh or um you know the reality experience that uh you know, people were coming back with you, you know rick you 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 talked about something i'd never heard anybody say before i'm wondering if anybody else reported to you you said that the little tykes were coming out of a waterfall and that's the first time i've ever heard that well, I'm sure you know somebody else, you know, has ex- experienced that. Well, you know, uh, we've we've had you know, it's probably a hundred of these experiences here on this uh, show. Oh, Larry's holding up his hand. No, I'm just, I'm really curious. Um, are they always little? <laughs> I'll no. let you answer that, Rick. No, I don't think so. Uh, I don't think so. Uh, but but still, uh, that's just curious. You know, if yeah yeah well they're usually small you know but if you think about it i mean you know what you know you know what would it be like you know, to um encounter a you know 90 foot high entity or being i it's you know hard enough with them being small i think if they were much you know bigger uh you know it might not uh, be that easy to uh you know to deal with um you know, maybe not. Uh, you know, that's the first you know thought that came to mind, or it it you know could be our you know grandiosity as a species. You know, we you know think of the other as uh, you know somehow smaller than we are. Yeah, I, I appreciate your open mindedness about that, uh, which of course a scientist has to have. You in the very beginning, you said something. I don't know if I heard it right, but did you say you you actually uh, had a DMT experience where Terrence McKenna was around? Yeah, yeah, I sp- I spoke about that a few months ago at an interview that I did with Graham Hancock. Um yeah, it was you know part of you know what we were speaking about earlier in the show about uh you get older you want to write your stories out so you know people can you know learn you know, from your own experience you know rather than you know simply what you've written about you know scientific matters. Yeah, yeah, you, you know so the the first you know time I smoked you know DMT you know, Terrence gave it to me. It was, you know, it was on the West Coast, uh, in a incredibly supportive environment. And, uh, yeah, these little beings, you know, four feet, you know, tall emerge from a blazing, you know, colorful, uh, waterfall. And, and how did you meet Terrence for the first time? Um, I met, you know, Terrence at Esalen. Ah, okay. So when he was speaking there? Yeah, yeah, you know, there were some, you know, psychedelic, you know, conferences as well, and we attended at least, you know, one of those together. So listen, we're, we're running out of time here, so do, do, uh, any of your, uh, our other people here want to ask a question while we have, uh, Rick available? And I've got a real question for Rick. Go ahead, Kevin. Yeah, so, uh, kind of speaking of, uh, Terrence and your first experience, and, uh, you know, so many of us were exposed to DMT, by, you know, DMT, the, the Spirit Malcolm book, or the documentary, or maybe uh, Alex Gray's work. Um, but I'm, I'm interested how 
were first exposed to DMT. Um, yeah. Well, do you mean as a concept or, you know, the topic of DMT? So, so yeah, I mean, the concept of it or just your first uh, ever encounter with what DMT was and what it could do and how it sparked interest to lead you to do the research. You know, came across, you know, DMT in uh, the scientific literature, uh, but I can't quite remember, you know, you know when or where it you know, must have been you know while i was doing my melatonin work in uh you know the early 1980s you know the mid you know 1980s uh and my you know first you know contact with the experience that it can produce you know was in the 80s maybe you know 5 years within that time or you know, a couple of years um yeah you know so i was a a marked man after that you know DMT experience it was uh, an epiphany, and uh, I decided that was going to be my career path. You know, from there on out, you know, my career path, my philosophical path, one of the tools of a spiritual path. Yeah, you know, so uh, yeah, there was no turning back at that point. And Rick, your story is identical to the story of Myron Stolroff, who had LSD for the first time in the fifties. He said there was, and literally, I think he said there is no turning back after that first time. Yeah, it's a strange thing. You wonder, you know, how that works. And I think that, you know, ties in with the idea of psychedelics as you know, super placebos. I, I think they make real something that was just, you know, theoretical before or unconscious before. Uh, you know, you know, Myron was a changed man. I was a changed man, but um, it wasn't, you know, like we were, you know, different people. It was, you know, more, you know, like the things within us, which uh, in our cases were for scientific inquiry and personal growth. You know, those kinds of concepts were made so clear uh, and so convincingly true. But if those concepts weren't there in the first place, then the outcome would have been completely different. I agree. I agree. Well, listen, Rick, I, I promised you we wouldn't keep you over an hour. So I, I sincerely appreciate your time. And on, on that, I think it's a good place to end. I hope that sometime we'll have a chance to come back and do this again. And uh, uh, particularly as, as Andrew and Danny and Kevin and some of these guys get a little farther along in their research, I'd like to uh, maybe have you come back and comment on what they've uh, been able to discover, if you want. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um... Um, so that would be fun. I always like to make comments. <laughs> well, again, we appreciate your time. And for the rest of you, I, I sincerely appreciate you being here again tonight. And I look forward to seeing you next Monday. Uh, until then, keep the old faith and stay high. <laughs> if you are interested in Graham Hancock's interview with Dr. Strassman that was just mentioned, I've added the link to that YouTube talk in today's program notes, which you will find at psychedelicsalon.com. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.